As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you like science fiction? You know, it's one of those things where I like it more in theory than in practice. And by that, I mean, (laughs) I like the... What does that mean? By that, I mean, I like the idea of being into science fiction, and I try to get into it every once in a while, and then I forget about it, and I'm like, oh, I should read more science fiction. And it, like, never seems to happen. Does that make sense? You know, most people don't like the idea of being into science fiction, but secretly actually like it and really read or watch a lot of science fiction yeah i didn't know that you're the opposite oh is that because it's like seen as like dorky or geeky or something like that or yeah yeah. no i could see that yeah exactly no like i i every once in a while i try but then i just like forget okay but you know star trek right yeah yeah i used to watch it pretty regularly Oh, okay. So then do you remember what the uh, mission or the prime directive of uh, the Star Trek uh, Starfleet was? No. No? I, no, I don't think so. All right. Well, um, I'm going to read it off Wikipedia. I don't want people to think that I know this like uh, by memory. Um So the Prime Directive is a guiding principle of Starfleet prohibiting its members from interfering with the internal and natural development of alien civilizations. The Prime Directive applies particularly to civilizations which are below a certain threshold of technological, scientific, and cultural development. So basically, you know, the more advanced civilization that is Starfleet shouldn't go around uh, bullying or influencing less developed civilizations during their space exploration. So at first I was about to ask what on earth this had anything to do with markets or economics or anything that we normally talk about. But that last point kind of makes me think that there might be an analogy to some developments that we're seeing today. Yeah, I think you know where we're going to go with this. And that is, of course, the uh, technological war, I guess you could say, between the U.S. and China. Right. And uh, we've talked about this before on the show, but the implications are so massive. These uh, tech fights, the race to control certain important technologies, so critical that uh, we really probably can't talk about it enough. Yeah, and the person that we're going to speak to on this is uh, 
As far as I can tell, a science fiction fan, and I have to say, one of the more unusual analysts that I have met uh, in, in my entire career in financial journalism. Uh, before I came onto the show, I actually just looked up his profile because I wanted to make sure that I got the job title right. And uh, his job description on LinkedIn is Galactic Energy Commodities Space Mining and Unobtainium Research at Jefferies. So uh, that's that gives you some idea. I can't wait. So who is this we're talking to who has such an awesome job title? All right. It's uh, Leban Yu. He is an analyst over at Jefferies, actually an energy analyst, I believe, but uh, writes a lot about broader issues in China. So uh, Leban, it's really good to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for that introduction. I have to say that wasn't the only job title on your LinkedIn. I also saw a galley slave at Macquarie and a Padawan learner at Lehman Brothers. Yes, uh, I guess my LinkedIn profile was um, uh, a, a, a bit of my um, my little joke against LinkedIn for using our content for their profit. So I did have a little laugh at their <laughs> expense, I guess. So are you a science fiction fan? I have to say I am. Uh, I don't think I am a raging science fiction fan, but I, I, I do follow it. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's important more and more because there's a lot of things in science fiction now um, that really pertain to what we, what we see happening in the world. What are the key things that you read and think about in the science fiction realm that you see happening in the world? Obviously, Tracy brought up the Star Trek Prime Directive and the U.S. Inter attempting to interfere with Chinese technological development. What are sort of the big themes in sci-fi that influence your thinking right now on what we see in the world? The one thing is we have to introduce this uh, Chinese science fiction writer. He's probably right now the most popular science fiction writer in China. He wrote a series of books uh, that uh, everybody reads in China as kind of a representative of the cultural, the civilizational clash between the U.S. and China. And in his book, he has one civilization, uh, which is a Trisolaran civilization, and they figured that they're going to take over Earth. And one of the ways they're gonna, they are going to accomplish this is by um, sabotaging all the scientific progress on Earth. So when um, the U.S. put the export ban on Huawei, that came to mind of a lot of people who have been, you know, following the situation, have been fans of Liu Cixing, where, wow, this is actually happening in real life. It's never quite been done. I don't know if there's ever been a, you know, historical precedent where one, you know, nation tries to hinder the scientific progress of another. Uh, it's just kind of new. So, so that, therefore, I think uh, as technology develops so quickly, this becomes kind of a new way that the conflict between nations will present itself. So uh, you used um, the allegory of the Chinese science fiction writer. Um, I think the name of the first book is The Three-Body Problem. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. 
You use that as an allegory for the U.S. trying to basically stymie uh, technological progress in China. But I guess my question is, do, do you think that is ultimately the goal of the U.S.'s trade policies and what they're doing with things like Huawei? Is it that strategic? I actually personally don't really think so. I think it's actually just a, you know, panicked anxiety. Let's do something it's uh it's a function of ignorance and anxiety and with some truth all mixed in there however there is the department of energy's um business advisory board they actually came out with a policy paper that actually tried to think through all of this and when they thought through all this they still advise that the us be very aggressive with export bans to china to stymie huawei even if it will ultimately result in the, uh, the acceleration of technological catch-up of China. And they still said this is the correct policy to take. So it seems like there are some parts of the American policy um, apparatus that has thought through this and has made this recommendation. Now, whether it's in everybody's head, it's unclear. Yeah, reading through your notes and you sort of talked about the two prongs of Trump's trade approach. One, on the tariff side, you say, you know, that might actually be sort of brilliant and it might actually begin to cause global multinationals to move their supply chains out of China uh, and that might have some effect. Whereas on the other hand, the export ban to Huawei, which as of right now, when we're recording this, which is in early July, uh, has been softened a little bit, as you put it, well, may have the perverse effect where supply chains move out of the U.S. so that companies can export technology to Huawei and also will have the effect of accelerating China's own efforts to build its homegrown technology. Yeah, so so that is where... Um once I saw these policies come through, you start scratching your head to think how well thought through a lot of these policies were. Because once the export ban was put in place, especially the extraterritorial parts of it, immediately I thought this is exactly the opposite of putting tariffs on Chinese exports. Because now, all of a sudden, um, anything with U.S. origin in it becomes kind of tainted. So a lot of the tech development that needs to find a Chinese market, because China's market is now the largest uh, semiconductor market in the world, it will try to move out of the U.S. Uh, either, you know, there are de minimis rules for the products if you're below 25%. So if, for example, some product had 28% U.S. content in there, all kinds of efforts will be made to make that below 25. In recent weeks, we have heard that a lot of U.S. companies are still supplying Huawei because they are manufacturing outside the U.S. Those kinds of efforts will continue if the export ban is, remains in place. I think one of the reasons that Donald Trump ultimately relaxed the export ban is because of you know very heavy lobbying from these uh, American companies trying to explain this point to him. 
Right. So Bloomberg has actually reported that there are companies like Intel who think that they found a, a legal, I don't want to call it a loophole, but, you know, the legal thing that does allow them, to your point, to ship to Huawei. Joe just mentioned this, but talk to us about the self-reliance notion when it comes to developing uh, China's own domestic technology capability. Because again, that's where the the sci-fi uh, analogy sort of comes in again. And that's where people start talking about the three-body problem and what happened to Earth when basically the alien civilization tried to stop them from developing technology. Right. So right, right when... Uh Right when a civilization uh, is under threat in this way, now developing your own technology isn't just an economic problem, it's a national security problem. China, which had already been throwing all kinds of resources into developing its semiconductor industry, um, we think right after the Huawei ban, whatever huge amount of resources they had already committed, there is now very likely a multiple on that. I don't know what multiple it is, but the U.S. has pushed China in a direction um, to try to stop China from doing something, it has actually, you know, uh, accelerated that process. So the long-term likely ramification of the U.S. threatening Huawei with this uh, technology export limitations is China then doubles down or uh, really increases its investment on domestic technology. What about the short-term gains? Because one of the concerns among many people in the U.S. government and industry is just who wins the race to 5G rollout? And there's a perception out there in your own research, Ed Jeffries has talked about this, that there are big gains from the first country that really rolls out 5G wireless technology, all kinds of revenue advantages, the ability to set all kinds of uh, standards and so on. Is there an advantage just in the short-term win if the U.S. can uh, slow down Chinese technological dominance right now in this area? I suppose there is some, but the most the U.S. will get out of it is um, technological catch-up on the U.S. side itself. So um, whereas right now, uh, if things stand as they are, China can't quite do 5G because it needs a lot of the U.S. parts. And the U.S. can't quite do 5G either because it needs a lot of the Huawei technology. So both sides have kind of hobbled each other, I guess, if this was the U.S. strategy from being well ahead of the pack, then now the race is kind of even, if you will. So the short term, there might be some benefit in one very specific industry. I think the problem with all this is that in the longer term, the trust that technology developed in the U.S. will have a global market has been damaged. So in the longer term, all kinds of R&D that, that would have been carried out in the U.S. might now have to be either relocated from the U.S. or replicated elsewhere. It's hugely inefficient. Um, and it's damaging to everybody, but it mostly damages actually the U.S. if that happens in the long term. As 
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So speaking of uh, inefficiencies and, and just going back to the notion of China accelerating its own technological progress because of what the U.S. is doing, I mean, we've seen China try to develop its own semiconductor industry before, and they haven't been that successful. So what are the chances that they're successful in doing this now? And what are the chances that they avoid, you know, ramping up technological capacity to the point of ridiculousness or mass inefficiency? China has taken multiple stabs at developing its semiconductor industry and has never done a very good job. It, uh, in the late 90s, it had an effort. And in um, the early 2000s, it had an effort. There's two major reasons why it did not succeed in the past. One of the major reasons is that China just did not have the human capital at that time. At that time, China had about a third or uh, in, the, in the early part of the 2000s, half the number of engineers as the U.S. However, over these years, the China's graduates of engineers from the year 2000 on, where they graduated about as many engineers every year as the U.S. to, 2000, to today, China graduates eight times the number of science and engineering uh, students every year. And the researcher, the stock of talent, has now surpassed the U.S. So now there's a lot of um, human capital in the market that can do this kind of work. So there is the resources to throw at this problem. The other thing is that the thing that held everything up is that there was no real market for the chips made in China. The chips made in China were subsidized products, and they were always somewhat behind what was already available stuff made by Intel or AMD. And they were probably more expensive and performed worse. So nobody bought them except for um, the defense industry in China that was required to buy them. But now that you have a company like Huawei and um, you have all those, the threat of you know further export bans. I read an article a while back that now a lot of companies, they describe suppliers um, from the U.S. as suppliers of the last resort. I mean, first you buy domestic, then you buy from the U.S. if all else fails. So now, because of the engineers there, and now all of a sudden, a market has been created so that Chips are sold, revenue is generated, and R&D in the semiconductor industry is just a function of revenue. If your revenue is there, about 20% of your revenue is spent on R&D, so that creates a virtuous circle. So there's a much higher chance of success this time around, just because you have two pieces in place now, which is the human capital, and then now, which is a market has been created. How far behind right now would you say still the Chinese semiconductor industry is? 
So kind of a thumb in the air is about six years. Now, the six years, you got to be somewhat careful on that. This assumes a, a static situation. It assumes that the U.S. stops technological advancing and then based on prior track record, how long it will take China to catch up in the different generations of chip manufacturing process. However, you can't quite assume that the U.S. will stop advancing. But also, something else has changed now. Now, what we believe is that the prior rates that China was catching up on has now been thrown out the window because of all the resources that China will throw at the semiconductor industry. And also, the rate of advance for the U.S. semiconductor industry, there's a big question mark on that now, because China is the world's largest market for semiconductors. If that world's largest market has a big question mark, whether there will be export bans on it, will the R&D be done in the U.S. to, to service that market? So the advance of the U.S. technology could slow down, and the catch-up speed of China's technology could accelerate. But, you know, in a static environment, uh, it's about six years. But, you know, we, we think it could be less than that. Let's talk about the uh, pure tariff side of the tensions that are going on right now. And again, we don't know exactly what the final trading relationship is going to look like between the U.S., and China, as of right now, the more stepped-up tariffs are on hold. A lot of analysts expect that maybe there will be some deal later in the year. You've written somewhat positively about Trump's tariff strategy. So I'm curious what potential gain you see from it. We touched on it in the beginning. And how you see how the Chinese government is going to play its cards in response. I'm not too sure I'm all that positive on Trump's strategy. What I think is that he, he is quite innovative in using tariffs. Tariffs have never really been used in this way before. Tariffs historically have been used to protect a domestic industry where, um, you know, there's a domestic beneficiary when you use this tariff. Domestic consumers are hurt, but you actually have a domestic beneficiary. In Donald Trump's case, he has no domestic beneficiary really in mind. Uh, all he has is uh, a foreign um, businesses that he really wants to cause some pain on. At the same time, he's causing pain on domestic consumers. However, if this foreign adversary caves, then there is no harm done to domestic consumers because the tariffs will be lifted and then the U.S. will collect the trade concession from whichever foreign adversary caved. And this strategy works extremely well with um, small economies, South Korea, you know, Mexico, Canada, they all caved. And the U.S. collects its concession, however minor they are, concession, concession, concession. However, if you have an adversary that is not small and that is not caving, then your tariffs are causing harm for your domestic consumers. You may be hurting the suppliers from the foreign country, but your consumers are being hurt. So then I think, me personally, I think that it's the, the level of pain on both sides is almost symmetric. 
So then it just becomes a, a game of who can withstand more pain. So as it's playing out, I think both sides right now think that they can stand more pain than the other. China, I think, believes that the U.S. will cave because special interests will force uh, Donald Trump to throw in the towel, whether it's the farm lobby, the consumer lobby, uh, or whatever. The politician in China believe that the U.S. is controlled by special interests. Donald Trump's strategy is probably betting on their belief that China's economy is tottering because of the huge debt that China's built up in recent years. Without that being true, China will not cave, and then it will just be a long, drawn-out trade war before someone realizes uh, which side is suffering more pain. So I've always wondered this, but the Trump administration seems to simultaneously believe that China is on the brink of a massive financial meltdown or economic slowdown of some sort. But at the same time, they seem to be very, very scared of the uh, potential for economic progress and eventually strength in the country. How, how did they square those two positions in their minds, you think? Yeah, I, I, from, from what I see, a, a lot of um, uh, commentary out of the U.S. does hold like a schizophrenic view of China. At the same time, they think China is advancing at such a pace that it will dominate everything and, it, and things must be done now. Otherwise, uh, nothing can be done uh, in five, ten years time when China controls everything. But also at the same time, they also believe that China's economy um, is so over leveraged, overstretched that it's on the brink of collapse. And those two kind of opinions exist almost simultaneously in the minds of a lot of American policymakers, I think. And I'm not too sure that that is um, healthy or correct and will lead to any kind of um, an intelligent strategy. I just want to go back to what you said about the Chinese perception that the U.S. can't win the trade war because special interests will ultimately force the administration or force the government to relent in some way. I mean, arguably, that view is somewhat vindicated just by the uh, recent actions with Huawei in which chip companies came and said and uh, urged the administration to relax the export controls. And that's exactly what happened. But more big picture does this essentially represent a fundamentally pessimistic view on the state of U.S. politics right now that our government, sort of regardless of who is in control, is incapable of doing anything long-term strategic because there will be these powerful special interests that will demand that be undermined for short-term profits? I think that is the opinion of the leadership in China. Rightfully or wrongfully, I think that is the opinion. There is um, a man by the name of Wang Huning. He just uh, recently ascended to the Standing Committee of the Politburo. You know, these are the seven people who pretty much run China. He has a very interesting background. He was never a politician. He never ran a province. He never ran an SOE. He never ran any ministries. He just extended the bureaucracy 
from academia and as advisors for the last three presidents from um, Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao and now uh, Xi Jinping. He is the ideological theorist for China, and he wrote a book about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. He spent a number of years in the U.S. studying in universities and researching universities, and he wrote a book um, titled America Against America, pretty much saying that the U.S. is controlled by what he calls uh, minority shareholders and special interests uh, control all of U.S. politics, and therefore it leads to um, gridlock and nothing that can be done with, um, you know, where big money control everything. This is not at all a very unique analysis. Yeah, people like Mansur Olson, the U.S. Um, political scientist, and Francis Fukuyama, who more or less come up with the same uh, conclusion, where Francis Fukuyama calls it um, repatrimonialization, which is a long drawn out phrase that he coined, which is the late stage democracies um, he will develop in such a way that um, special interests control everything, and that's um, Mansur Olson's theory as well, where um, what he calls distributional coalitions, which is special interests, will dominate the political landscape. And both Mansur Olson and Francis Fukuyama, their conclusion is that once it happens, they can't think of, of any way that it can be resolved. This is kind of a steady state. I have to ask, who do you think is ultimately going to be able to withstand the most pain when it comes to the trade war? Is it the U.S. with, you know, a, a fractured political system beholden to lots of interest groups, but that is coming from a position of strength and power to some degree? Or is it China with its command economy able to develop industries very quickly, but coming from a lower base? Which one? I have to say China, you know, Time is on China's side. China's government has much, a uh, lot more tools that it can use if the economy really were to, you know, enter a really weak patch. They can um, do a lot of things that the U.S. cannot. They can stimulate um, their banks. They can cut taxes like they already have. And, you know, kind of the magic thing with China is it still has reform in its back pocket can always do reforms, can privatize its SOEs. There is an effort right now to more or less push toward the privatization of SOEs, which is probably going to force SOEs to pay a lot more dividends, pretty much distributing the capital from the SOEs to the larger economy through tax cuts. So there's a lot of tools that China has. China also has the benefit that they more or less control the media. As this trade war is being raged, they have already been preparing the population with you know, propaganda, linking this to the Korean War, um, linking the trade war to the Long March. Now, in the U.S., there has been very little preparation for the fallout. I guess they're hoping a deal will be cut and there won't be any fallout. But right when prices really start rising for American consumers, right when the farmers really uh, start you know, losing a lot of sales, these interest groups will you know, start their lobbying efforts and start pushing back. China's economy is 
probably could take, you know, it, the, the, the damage to China's economy in the short term could be larger on a percentage basis. It's not about who is damaged more. It's more about who can take more pain. So even if the U.S. economy suffers less, it's unclear whether they will be able to withstand that amount of suffering. Lei Ben Yu, head of Hong Kong China Research at Jefferies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was so great. I really enjoyed that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Joe, I have a, a, a secret confession, which is that I started reading The Three-Body Problem after uh, reading one of Laban's notes a few weeks ago. See, remember, I, I actually started reading that like two years ago. Now I got to start. Ah, you beat me. <laughs> and that, no, but I didn't finish it. You'll probably beat, beat me to it, but I'll rest- I do want to restart reading it now. It's good, although, I mean, Laban has kind of uh, ruined the plot a little bit because now we know that the alien civilization tries to suppress technology on Earth, and in doing so, they encourage Earth to basically ramp up their technological prowess, and years and years of intergalactic warfare kind of ensue. So I wonder if that's going to be what happens to the U.S. and China. Wait, aliens are going to come and... No. Oh, no, no, no. The U.S. are the aliens in this one, right? No, I think if aliens actually came to Earth, I think there's a chance that the U.S. and China might unite, right, against a common enemy. Oh yeah, so let's we should root for that outcome and uh, avoid <laughs> avoid domestic uh, earthbound strife. Yes, exactly. All right. On a serious note, though, I really enjoy um, having Laban come on and and talk about this, and I think he does point out some very interesting things, especially when it comes to the differences in the respective political systems of the U.S. and yeah. China. Yeah, that's that was really one of the things that struck me, and now I want to read that guy's book, America vs. America. But, you know, it's funny thinking about it from that lens because, in a way, it suggests that the election of Donald Trump, while we sort of think of it as this major event that sort of changes everything, if you think about it through sort of like stages of democracy and we're at mm. this captured stage in which long-term strategic planning isn't even really something that we don't we don't really even have the muscle for it anymore, mm-hmm. then it makes you sort of wonder whether Trump is just sort of a an artifact or just a something along the road of a path that we've already long gone down on. Right. It also puts me in mind of one of the earliest Odd Lots episodes that we ever did, which was with the archaeologist Arthur Demarest, where he talked about how or why civilizations are prone to collapse. And he basically argued that it's when they become too complex that things start to go pear-shaped. And you can see that a little bit when we start talking about trade and interest groups and the notion that you're going to have to hire dozens and dozens of lawyers to figure out whether or not you can, right. you know, sell into China. You you can see that complexity uh, really clearly. Yeah, absolutely. We should have him back on soon. That oh, yeah. was a really good episode. I love that. That was one of my favorite episodes. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. 
And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And you should follow the head of podcasts at Bloomberg, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And follow Bloomberg's podcasts overall on Twitter at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.